Hello and welcome to The Leaderverse with your hosts, Drew Lee, Lucas Sheradin, and me, Jesse Button. I love the progression of today's conversation, the power of creativity. We dive deep into the relevance of nurturing creativity within your organization and the difference that it can make in embracing change and innovation. Do you know why certain patterns leave organizations totally stagnant and how leadership mindset plays a major role in this? Buckle up for a transformative discussion where we replace blame with responsibility, fostering this unshackled environment for creative thought. Plus, get ready for some rich coaching perspectives on unlocking different thinking and action patterns within your team. You don't want to miss this journey today on The Leaderverse. I wanted to ask you guys your opinion on this. This is about 25 years ago, NASA started this study. They took in 1,600 um, five-year-olds, and what they were trying to do was recruit the geniuses of the future. And so they tried to figure out, they set out to figure out what makes Drew and I were in that study, by the way. We opted out. It just was a little too beneath us, so... <laughs> I know which percentage of the study you're going to fall into. <laughs> but these kids, what they found out is first they defined being a genius. They said they were measuring your ability to use your creativity to solve problems. And what they found was that out of the out of the five-year-old group, 98% of them fell into the genius category. Five years later, they brought them back in and that fell to below 30%. Five years later, they brought them back in when they were 15, and that had fallen to 2%. So effectively and horrifyingly, they were able to prove that as a species, we had a 98% genius rate. And what do you do between the ages of five and 15, five days a week for eight hours a day? They were able to effectively prove that the American school system is taking our species and absolutely unlearning any creativity and problem-solving um, skills that we have that we're born with. And so they proved that a lack of creativity is a learned behavior. So scared, really terrified me, scared me. So I'm like, as a leader, how do we, how do we figure out the unsolvable problems or rather like, how do we develop or redevelop our creativity? Because well, my first days, thought, go ahead, sorry. Well, I was gonna say my first thought is, this is so awesome that I was a high school dropout at 15. Wow. See, I, I, I have some of Broke that genius them all. left. You do. you do. Well, because I think the other thing too, Drew, and I mean, this is not a knock on the education system. So I'm not trying to knock teachers. I think they're heroic. I think they're grossly underpaid. Yeah. However, as a system, we don't teach creativity. We teach compliance. And yes. if you're going to be a, if you're going to be a creative, it's why it's like I last night I couldn't sleep. So I turned on, um, I, if I can't sleep, I'll usually turn on something that I like I've seen before or something that will put me back to sleep. But I was watching the story of Mark Zuckerberg and, and social network, the movie social network. It's like, he did not fit the mold. He still doesn't. Uh, Steve jobs did not fit the mold. Winston Churchill did not fit the mold. Bill Gates did not fit the mold. I think our education system at its root, has to be really careful because I think it teaches more compliance and checking boxes than it does. How do you think? In fact, think about it. How many classes do you go that teach you two key components that I think are essential in an adulthood? One, financial literacy. We never got taught that ever, ever, ever. 
we were taught, go to school, get a degree, get a job, put your money in the bank, save it, save your money. A penny saved is a penny earned, which is, by the way, the motto of the middle class. It's not the motto of the wealthy. And number two, we were taught, we were, uh, so we weren't taught financial literacy. Number two, I don't remember ever having a class, and I've got a good part of my master's degree done, where I was taught how to think. Nobody taught me how to think. They taught me one plus one equals what, Lucas? Three. No, wrong. Two. Okay, awesome. Um, we weren't, as a rule, there was outliers of great teachers. We weren't taught how to think, and I think that that, you think about uh, the great generation, Drew, was what, the like the generation that came back from World War II? That's what they call it, yes. They, they called that the great generation. And you think about the ingenuity, engineering, the things that we accomplished as a country, off the charts, creativity, and we imagined and we dreamed. I don't know that we, as a society, I don't know that as a whole, we're there again. Mm-hmm. I think we're so I, I think this is this is a lot of my hypothesis. I think we're so conditioned to getting A's that that kills our creativity because creativity is failing repeatedly and every once in a while hitting the ball. And I think we're so conditioned to not fail that we just don't try. And I, I guarantee you there are people who are the greatest leaders the world has ever seen that are sitting in a cubicle somewhere because they bought into the myth that I need a job and a security. So they don't think they don't take risks. Or they took a risk one time and they got burned. And instead of trying again, they they got a job. Nothing wrong with well, that's the what entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs disrupt or they invent. They 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 take something that's already existing and they change it and they want to customize it and they want to improve it and they want to make it different. Or they invent something new, whether it's a new class, new product, new service, new software. And the the creativity is an essential component of both. You have to look at something and say, how could that even be better? That's creative. You have to look and say, what doesn't exist that I could go make? You know, when when we had the opportunity to interview Sarah Blakely, uh, the inventor and founder of Spanx, she took a product, pantyhose, cut the legs off and invented a whole new product, a whole new category. And, and obviously a billion dollar business because it also solved the problem fundamentally well you go into the school system and what is it you learn a you know a b c you learn the alphabet you learn how to number you learn how to count you learn essentially how to take information memorize it and then spit it back onto a conformed test that tells you how acceptable you are for the next leg of your journey whether it be the next grade or whether it be uh, a higher grade. I, I say that in jest of, you know, it, it's, you know, it is not a knock on the educational system. And I say in jest that, yes, I'm a 15 year old high school dropout that somehow managed to go to college. And I kept that kind of rebellious yet creative uh, gene of, well, why do we have to do it that way? And questioning the conformity the I and the irony is the very conformity that I question as a student that got me kicked out of school is the same thing that serves me as an entrepreneur to this day and why I'm in business because I question well why does it have to be done that way? But we don't reward that. Certain school systems are are starting to get a clue. As a as a society, we don't reward that. If you ever want a mind-blowing book, or it's even better on Audible to read. And the reason I say it's mind-blowing because it was written about 15, 20 years ago. 
you'd have to look up the exact date, but it's by a guy named Daniel Pink and it's called a whole new mind. Mm. And what makes it so mind blowing is when it was written, what he describes, it's kind of like watching the Jetsons or, you know, one of those, you know, back to the future movies. And now you're looking at, you know, Hey, in in the year 2020, this is the way life is going to be. But now it's 2020 and 2022, you know, 23. In Daniel Pink's book, The Whole New Mind, he he choreographs what he believes to be the future direction of where we're heading. And if you listen to it now, in retrospect, you're like, wow. And he said the biggest dangers to call it our economy or our creativity, what jeopardizes us the most, especially in North America, is automation. Uh, what, what are we, what's all the rage? AI. Mm-hmm. automation abundance asia those were the three biggest je- or threats to the economic way of life in north america automation because if it can be done automated then you don't need creativity you don't need empathy you don't need another human being to do it you don't need to think it's replaceable so all of the, the AI conversations that are happening right now, hmm, there's automation. What what do so many service industries, what are they attempting to do? Automate their touches, automate their communication, automate their processes. How do we make a transaction automated? I mean, you go to a grocery store and there's a self-checkout. It's never felt less personal than it does today to go to a store and you're checking yourself out. I almost feel the need to talk to the little mirror that's making sure I'm not stealing anything just to say, hey, how was your day? Fine. How about you? <laughs> the ones at Target are so clear, too. They're like super 4K, if you ever notice. Yeah, you I'm might sure as well have a conversation with the cashier because you are one. So you might as well you might as well talk to one. <laughs> so automation is a big piece. And then um, well, Asia because... Can I build on that automation piece though, Drew? Is, is if you think about it, if you had to go someplace that you've been before, if you had to tell me how to get to a place in your town, could you? And I'm going to guess no, because you use maps and you would just say, put put the address in. We don't know how to get anywhere without maps anymore. Uh, tell me, tell me your wife's cell phone number. You know, it's like, I don't know any of my kids. I know one of my kids' cell phone number because it used to be mine. It's like, I don't remember numbers, but I still remember 913-841-6164, which is the phone number I had when I was growing up 40 plus years ago. I still remember that. And so it's like I the automation is, is such a here, – here, here's the experiment, Drew. Let's imagine, Jesse and Drew, we go back to 1920 and somebody puts us back in the time, time machine, takes us back to 1920, plops us into the United States of America. Could we survive? I don't know that we can. We're so used to our phones doing a lot of stuff and automation doing a lot of stuff. It's like, where do I get food? How do I make money? Uh, It's like, I have no employable skills in the 1920. I talk with my mouth. You know, they weren't paying your mouth to talk back then, right? So like- You'll love this. There's a recent episode of South Park. Uh, It's a new new movie. And and it's a a whole spoof on kind of society today. Um, it can be considered very offensive. So just be forewarned if you watch it. But one of the premises was there are all of these educated intellectual people at Home Depot looking for work. And what they want to do is they rather than 
those who know how to actually do handyman services. They're looking at trading their services in for people to know how to do things. And there was a television reporter that's jokingly say, hi, Tom, I'm out in front of the Home Depot. We've got attorneys and accountants and and all of these people down here that went to go to college. But as we've been educated and and we don't know how to do anything, nobody <laughs> knows how to fix anything today, Tom. Brilliant. That's awesome. It really, me to really think it's like I should send my kids to trade school before I send them to college if I send them to college. Well, and you know what? Interesting about that too, Drew, is like we, uh, this last year we moved into a new house. My wife did a pretty extensive renovation job and the, the, we were talking to a real, like at first we hired a contractor and they, they just sent crummy workers over to the house and they, they were inexpensive. And then we hired a real electricity because we had some real problems and it was just like, nobody is trained. Nobody knows how to do this. People are, you know, just like if you could connect black on black and white on white, you're an electrician. And he said that there's just so much more to that. And he was just like, the trades are gone. And I'm not I'm not saying that we need to bring them back. I'm, what I am saying is I'm not sure that as a society, well, you kind of proved it, Jesse. I don't know that we're smarter just because everything's automated and everything's easy and everything. Oh, we're dumber. Yeah, we, we may very well be dumb. Think about it. It's like if you and the three of us had to do a podcast 20 years ago, could we figure out how to do that? No. We couldn't do that because now we just click a button. And if my Zoom link doesn't work, I'm texting you saying, what's wrong with the Zoom link? It's like, okay. I don't know how to figure stuff out. And and I, I think, and if we put this in the context of leadership, Drew, one of the missing components in our organizations is we have organizations of compliant fish that are just swimming with the stream mm -hmm. being led by compliant people trying to keep their job by swimming with the stream. And we're not, we're not thinking because if we start to think and we start to create, we get our hands slapped or we get, we get yelled at, or if we voice dissent, right, Drew, you, we, you and I are part of an organization, just try to speak your mind of a differing opinion on a organizationally wide call. How does that work out for you, buddy? Yeah. I mean, it, it just doesn't. And, so we, th this is the tension. How do we get to our vision as leaders and allow our organizations to think and create? That's the tension. And really to foster that, those conversations, like to make those, make sure those, to make sure as a leader, I am helping my people develop, redevelop their creativity. Like after hearing, after learning about this study, that was my, that was my fear that the folks that I lead and that I work with, that we're all getting dumber somehow because we can't solve problems the same way. So my 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 new concern is how do I make sure that I'm surrounding myself with thinkers with um or or people that are working on their thinking? Um, how do I surround myself with people that are going to challenge me because I'm going to be wrong as a leader? I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to make a, a an incorrect decision, but I have a better chance of making better decisions if I'm surrounded with creative people that know how to think, right? Yes. Because <sighs> creativity is how you solve problems. If you solve problems with conformity, then you are going to attempt to solve a problem the way that the last person did or the way you were taught to solve a problem, which actually is usually what replicates the same issue. It's mm -hmm. like, the you know, the old adage, you know, how do you know when a problem is solved? You stop making the mistake or you stop recreating the problem. A lesson's mm -hmm. learned when you stop repeating it. 
Well, it's what your mentor taught all of us, Drew. Uh, Tony DeSello said, uh, and I think he was quoting Einstein. I'm not sure who he was quoting, but a problem is never solved at the level of thinking it was created. Yes. And and yeah. if you think if you're broke, well, the way you're thinking causes you to be broke. If your organization isn't moving forward, the way you're thinking is uh, created that. And if you continue to think at that level, you're going to continue to perpetuate the same issue. And so, and to give, uh, yeah, to give everyone a simple idea on that topic of you know problems never created in the manner in which it was solved, just ask yourself how do you, how are you stating your existing problem? Whatever problem you're going through with your call it your health, your family, your relationships, your business, your finances, your your spiritual life, wherever it is, whatever main component is or or a combination of them, whatever challenge you have, just ask yourself, what is my problem? How you state that problem will determine well, if you're good. stuck or if there are solutions to be offered. There... My problem is blank. We're dipping into a little bit of like personal therapy here too. So like I had a therapist tell me once, this is genius, that ha to not name emotions that you're not feeling. For example, I'm so angry about this. I'm so sad about this. Well, are you, are you actually angry or are you actually sad? It's, it's so important to look at how you're stating your problem because that's how you're going to respond. If I am, if I am saying I'm so sad about something, but I'm not actually sad, maybe I'm humiliated or maybe I'm, maybe I'm mad about it. I'm not, I'm not actually sad. I'm going to respond as a sad person. And so if you're stating your problem as, well, you know, this, this impossible thing that I'm never going to fix, that is exactly how you're going to act and respond. It's like you're, it's like by speaking that way, you're casting a spell on your responses. Now, there, there's a book that I just heard the speaker a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the book's name is The Science of Stuck. I'll, I'll find out what the author, author is. She's, and honestly, it was her her own journey with eating disorders and dysfunctional relationships. And she was a, a recreational social meth user, you know, younger. And then she said she had just a wake up moment when she found herself at five o'clock in the morning in a very slimy, filthy, dirty, drug infested bathroom with a pipe and she's like what the heck am i doing i am stuck and that began the journey and, and hence the book the science is stuck uh, was, was born i i just think that right now it seems like uh, uh, what the people i'm coaching or consulting and even looking in my own journey there's a lot of stuck why do you think that people, is lucas uh, they they haven't hired truly to be their coach <laughs> uh, no no i i, I think that it, it's because i think in the middle of change uh, in the middle of change, or and I think that's the constant in life, in the middle of change, the older we get, the more comfortable we become with yesterday's successes. And the more comfortable we become with yesterday's successes, we're committed to this is what worked instead of thinking through what's going to work today. Uh, yes, yeah, on a call, on Monday's call, when uh, you, you got called out, uh, Ben Kenny introduced an, a pretty cool model. I, I posted on in the Leaderverse this morning. That whenever um, we we go through any type of journey and we're going through success, the initial phase is uh, I'm reading it right now, uninformed optimism. So, like I start a new business, I get into real estate, I I have a mastermind that uh, starting that starts this week. Boy, when I had the idea, I was like, "This is awesome! This is going to be great!" Uninformed optimism, and then we get into informed pessimism. Phase two is like, "Oh my gosh, this is harder than I thought." Oh my gosh, 
these people don't like what I'm doing. Oh my goodness. These people are that I'm, my target audience is crazy, busy and crazy out of money. And this, this is going to require time and money and travel. And so informed. Now I know how hard it's going to be. The third phase is the Valley of despair. It's like, Oh gosh, let's just throw in the towel. This isn't going to work. You, you coach, I bet you, you have this conversation 50% of the time. It's like, this isn't working. Maybe I need to go do something else. Or maybe I need, here's what real estate teams do. Maybe I just need to go small and mighty instead of big and big and mighty. It's like, it's like, it's that small is where the safety is. Let me, you know, it's just me and I'm not going to have anybody around me and I'm terrible hirer. I'm a terrible leader. So they get to the Valley of despair. That's where decisions get to made, be made that do I a quit and go back and repeat phases one and two again, get, you know, get uninformed, optimistic about the next thing. And then I'm going to hit phase two. Or do I decide, you know what? I'm going to sit in my dirty diaper for a little bit and get better. And then phase four is informed optimism. Like now I know how hard it is. Now I know the obstacles and here are my plans and my bets to overcome them. And then finally, phase five is success and fulfillment. That fulfillment never comes when you beat something easy. Fulfillment only comes when you hit the valley of despair and get through it. <laughs> yeah, you, you just ran the New York Marathon, you psycho. And, and I, I heard a little bit of your story that you literally wanted, you were going to quit. The fact that you didn't quit gives you a sense of fulfillment because you faced the real logical, reasonable criteria to quit. And you said, no, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. I, I think that that's the cycle that every leader has to go through. Th those five phases really helped me a bunch. Psycho. It's great. Yeah, Drew's a psycho. We've interviewed him about marathons before, but I think people are stuck because they hit that valley to spare Drew and then they go back to uninformed optimism. May well, maybe if I buy these leads. Or they hit the valley of despair and says, you know what, let me get rid of all my agents. Or they hit the valley of despair and says, I'm going to quit recruiting. Or they hit the valley of despair and say, gosh, there's not enough inventory. Interest rates are high. There's the DOJ case. Now they're now the in the real estate space, uh, they're suing individual agents. I saw a news case in Texas where not only were brokerages named, they named two or three top teams by name. One of them, a very good friend of mine, Lance Loken, was named for commissions, it's like they're coming after real estate agents. So we hit the valley of despair and says, oh, let me go do it this way. And then there's uninformed optimism. And I think that that's the stuck pattern in my mind. They hit that valley of despair and they want to go and get small and go back to safety. And yeah, that makes Or even the opposite. I bet you, Drew, you probably have coached people like, you know what I need to do is I just need to go hire 30 agents because that's going to solve all my problems. I can't manage two agents. But what's going to solve my problem is I'm going to go hire 30 and run a mini brokerage or even better yet, when a mega agent in the real estate space says, you know, what I'm going to do, I'm going to just leave my office and go start my own brokerage. Stupid, 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 stupid. I own brokerages. Stupid, stupid, stupid. It's like because it's interesting what we're uninformed upon, we could get very optimistic about. And I well, think we're that's usually optimistic in any new pursuit because it's exciting. It is new. There's something that happens in the human mind. When, they're, when we're either learning something, actually, there's a part of the mind that actually lights up when we're learning something new, yeah. new content, new information. It's exciting. That's why they, they say it's like, you know, mastering something is actually boring because when you're learning something new, your improvement of this new thing is at hundreds, 200, 300% improvement. I mean, like Jesse, you got a guitar that I could see sitting behind you. It's like when you first learn to play the guitar, you're you're improving a hundred percent a day just by practicing a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I learned a new chord. Oh, I learned this. 
So it's like your growth rate is, is almost a straight incline. You're just going, getting better and better and better and better and better. But as you get better and you start to really improve and you get really good, or you even get great at a guitar, well, then the, the next level of reality sets in of like to get 1% better, you might have to practice for a hundred hours. Mm-hmm or a thousand hours just to get a little bit better or to master one chord or one different piece or, or the speed of, of transitioning. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in business, it's the same way. It's so much easier to say, Oh, this is kind of hard. I'll go do the next new thing. That's exciting or, or optimistic. And you know, in all cases, what's, what seems to be missing though is the responsibility piece. It's taking full ownership of what is the problem at hand. And the moment you say it's this, them, they, it, you've actually relinquished your power, your control, and you've made it almost an unsolvable problem. My people aren't performing. Okay. Well, what's your biggest problem? Well, my people aren't performing. That is a ultimate definition of an unsolvable problem because there's no responsibility in it and the way you've stated that problem has no potential solution and so what we tell ourselves is well then i need to get them doing more what can you do to get you better such that by doing it they will become better by default what can you go learn what can you teach not what can they implement What can you teach them that should move the needle? Do you know how to do that exceptionally well? You're going to teach me guitar, Jesse? Great. Well, then then you have to get better yourself to be able to instruct me in a manner in which I can learn this. But if you say Drew sucks at guitar, he's not getting it. He's not learning it. He's not picking this up. I don't think he has a musical bone in his body. He just sucks. I might need to fire Drew as a student because he just can't learn guitar. And that's the way a lot of leaders in business approach problems. I can't figure it out. It's their problem. I'll just get rid of them. Find someone new. That's kind of the poster child textbook of abdicating your power, because at that point, all the power is in the student versus if Jesse were in that scenario to say, I'm obviously ineffective right now. What approach can I take that would be effective for Drew? Yeah. Right. That that now Jesse's back into the power. Got, took the power back. It's not Drew sucks. It's I'm ineffective at what I'm doing. So let me take a look internally and see what can I do more effectively, or or change my language, or change my words, or change my approach. Yeah. Not to. I mean, to summarize that, and not to step on any leader's toes, but maybe it's maybe it's necessary. If your people aren't growing and developing, I think that's your fault. I think that's your least- fault as the leader. And if they're, and if you let it go, you're going to run yourself into a bigger problem because what happens on teams when the salespeople aren't growing and developing, they leave eventually. They're not, if they're not growing. They fail or they leave. You're, I mean, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. They either leave or they fail. They either quit, they leave, or they're asked to leave. Either way, there's no future in our relationship together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sole responsibility is to, of the leader. Is to grow the people. And I think there, there's a language distinction. Maybe you guys could weigh in or say that I'm I'm not I'm off on this. I I think that leaders need to be careful with language. 
where I pushed back a little bit on what you said, Jesse, is it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. I think that there's a big difference between fault and responsibility. And when I'm responsible, I can respond differently. If it's my fault, then I have to deal with blame and, 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 and some yeah. shame stuff. And it's just like, so the, the height of my organizations and the company that I lead, the way my people are thinking that are in my company, that's my responsibility. And it's a partnership. I'm not a hundred percent responsible. I'm a hundred percent responsible to lead. They're a hundred percent responsible to learn. It, it's two ways. I'm not gonna. I I have been in situations where I've seen leaders take are over responsible, take too much responsibility, and then we're not. We don't have powerful people. But basically, if I'm fully responsible for Drew's level of thinking or guitar playing, then I need Drew to be a robot, and therefore Drew's not going to be creative and not a thinker because now I'm totally responsible for how he thinks, and that's not healthy either. So yeah. it's a partnership. We need thinking people leading thinking people. And I, I have to like for as a leader, I was just thinking about that last night. If I had a Mark Zuckerberg in my organization, oh, dear God. It's just like I probably would be so insecure and so threatened and constantly resisting the urge to control or to 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 he needed a whole lot of guidance. I mean, that, that guy he probably still does. But I mean. Back in those days at Harvard, when he did face mesh and and did, did all, he needed a lot of guidance. He needed a lot of personal help. However, a leader would have come in and seen his genius and been able to say, "I'm I'm secure with myself." He just needs to be able to create and think and and bump his knees and mess up and and what have you. So, can I you think- imagine that, Drew? If you if you had a coaching calendar filled with thirty Mark Zuckerberg's, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. <laughs> and they bucked the system all the time. They're making messes all the time. They're thinking so yeah. out of the box. Like we want, we want to coach Steve Jobs as he ended. We want to coach Mark Zuckerberg after he's built everything. But man, that process getting there, thinkers are messy, and we like organizations to be clean. Mm. You can be. I think the caveat is: is are we both clear as a leader, as a coach, as a client, as an employee? as a subordinate or as somebody that's a team member, or even a, you know, in a, in a leadership capacity, our partners, are we going the same direction? Is Are the people we're leading actually heading in the same direction? Do we know what they want? And do we all want the same things? You know, one thing I've, I've attempted to keep in, in the back of my mind and remind clients that I coach all the time is, Hey, we want the same thing. We just may not always agree of the best way to get there. I want what you want. And except in an organization is, is if what you want doesn't align with what the organization wants. So Drew, let me you look at this. most of these people and what were they? They were entrepreneurs, but they were on the invention side of entrepreneurship. They invented new things. They took computers, personal computers, and they invented new products out of them. They improved these things. They created things that hadn't been created pre- previously. So Drew, if if I'm listening to this and I'm a leader and I I act, you don't have to help me realize, I realize I'm stuck. I'm having the same year repeatedly. I'm having the same boring, nauseatingly boring thought processes. I'm doing. I'm I'm constantly having people come into my company, learn everything, and then go. Or I have people I have a revolving door. I, mean, I whatever it is, I am stuck. And I know it. Let's go there because I'd say half the people who are stuck don't know that they're stuck. Mm-hmm. Right. How how do you coach somebody out of being stuck as a leader? Sure. Well, let, let's first let's let's do an example. Sure. What do you think is the biggest problem in that scenario? 
Well, we're creating hypothetical things. So the biggest sure. problem, though, is going to be the leader and the way that they're thinking. And they're, they, they're saying, Drew, I'm stuck. How do I get unstuck? Great question. So the, fir the first part I'd ask is, what does stuck mean to you? What does it mean to be stuck? How do you know you're stuck? Let, let me let me just play this out. My my profit and loss looks exactly the same as it does. I constantly have the same turnover that I always do. Sure. I, yeah. Sure. So, so the, what does that tell you? The outsides are, are, are repeating, so I just can't get out of that pattern. 100%. So you're doing the same things, making the same decisions over and over again, which are creating the same outcome. So you would point them back to behavior. I'd point them back to behavior, but more importantly, it's what is your way of thinking about this that's okay. creating the behavior? Because behavior starts with our thoughts first. Yeah, everything. Our thinking good. leads to our actions. So how are you thinking about that that's leading you to doing the same thing, ending up with the same results? Most importantly, are you aware of this? All transformation starts with awareness. Are you aware? You're aware of the outcome, but are you aware of what's creating it? The same decisions that you're running into. How are you seeing this as your problem? Nice. So I'm stuck is a good example of tell me one thing that's a solution in that statement. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing. There's no solution and I'm stuck. That, that, that'd be like pointing out an obvious. I am in quicksand. <laughs> okay. Yep. See it. Do you see it all around me? Look, look, I'm stuck. I'm in quicksand. Yes, we're now aware of this. You've played it out. I can envision this. I see Lucas stuck in the quicksand. And now what? Well, I'm stuck. We've we've identified that. And in order to get unstuck, what are your resources? What are your options? Nice. Where are you attempting to go? So you have goals, all right? What would be a way to move closer towards that goal in something we haven't done or attempted previously? So tell me what you've done. You're in quicksand. What have you done besides laying in quicksand, yelling and bitching about it, crying about it, whining to me about it? Now what? Well, I reached for a rope. What did that look like? It didn't work. I grabbed a tree branch. It broke. People handed me a trombone and it came apart. It's like that line in the in, in the movie Jumanji with Robin Williams. Stop giving me things that come apart. <laughs> you know, when he's stuck in the floor and about to fall through. Well, in order to get unstuck, what do you think would be the next natural step? Very tactical. Love it. Now, how are you looking at that? This is something you've attempted before. It's a tactical approach. What you really want to dive into is how is this person seeing this situation? Are they seeing it and owning it as their fault? I jumped in the quicksand or are they seeing it in results of it happened to me? This person left. That person did this. My people didn't perform. The, the, the numbers didn't show up. There, there's always an external experience that's happening like life is happening or business is happening or situations are happening to this person and there's no ownership of creating it love it super helpful my people aren't performing and and if you really want to summarize all this you could you can simply ask okay lucas tell me in the last 12 months 
What's something you've done to be a better, different version, improved of yourself? What's Lucas 2.0 versus 1.0 look like in the last 12 months? What have you read? Who have you talked to? What have you attended? What have you learned? Who have you surrounded yourself with that's different than the same people you surrounded yourself with a year ago? Like, what are the differences that would make you a better leader or a better version of yourself than you were a year ago? Because one thing for all leaders that are listening, I don't care how many people you're leading. If you're not doing something to improve or grow you, your organization will at some point flatline if it hasn't already. I heard, I haven't heard us say this exactly, but it sounds like you're both saying your ownership, your non-blaming and your ownership, appropriate level ownership of the problem is your power and your control of it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you're, yeah. You're ultimately responsible for the plan. Right. And you've got to find people to help you execute it. And I think Drew's coaching, if I've listened to Drew carefully as a, as a very seasoned coach, one is he is uh, doing the, the subject of my book. He's doing a contextual reframe, helping me ch challenging the way I see something and the story I create around whatever that something is, number one. And number two, getting me into motion because he could probably change my thinking faster if I'm moving than if I'm standing still. So he's going to go tactical, say, what are you going to do differently? And then he's going to watch how I think about whatever it is I'm going to do differently to challenge yeah. the way I'm seeing that, whatever it is. And yeah. so that's why it's like, I think great coaches put us into action first, because what the action does is reveal the way I'm seeing things and the stories I've created around stuff. Yes. Did I do that right, Drew? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get underneath what you what you just kind of walked me through, but would that be a fair assessment? That would be a, that would be a very fair assessment. We're also going to evaluate, you know, what patterns like what are the big patterns? People, I mean, we're all unique individual. We have unique souls, values, beliefs, patterns of behavior aren't that unique especially in the business world, you'll see replicating patterns of behavior in, in both leaders and subordinates. And if you could identify what are the patterns that create growth and what are the patterns that create repetition and what are the patterns that create, call it recession or a decline or a decrease or hitting a ceiling. If, when you can identify these patterns, it's very similar to sports. It's like, okay, what if you're playing golf, what's your pattern of when you hit the ball from your stance to your swing and the ball slices while you're attempting to make it go straight? If you can change that pattern, then you can improve the performance. Mm 